0: Welcome back to Beyond the Iron Sea. This time we're hitting episode number five. We're not the first unofficial Keen podcast, but definitely one that says screw this heat. We're taking off our trousers and we're going to the beach, licking the nuts off our corns this week. We're now for Keen as their latest German sessions end. Sawidi Ka, Ka. We speak to an excitable Scotsman about massive organs and impressive instruments. See,
1: because I was ready and framed, and then I wilted.
0: And we ask why this German man keeps on interrupting Tim. To start off with, that was a irresistible feeling when it started. I can feel that it's much more of a. The album is a gemeinschaftswerk uh, viel mehr als, als das letzte. the Spicy, all those rays of sunshine and more in this edition of Beyond the Iron Sea. Re-bats. A version of Crystal Ball played backwards topped the charts in Turkey for 27 weeks. The News has reached us by combination of pigeon Telegram and the band's official website that Keane's latest fortnight stint in Teldec Studios in Berlin is now complete. Further indication of the band's probably non-existent descent into drug-fueled madness has come in a blog from Tim, in which he mentions that the band had been projecting loops of old Ingrid Bergman videos onto the control room wall. Rumours that the Under the Iron Sea sessions saw loops of cricket highlights and hardcore pornography being used for the same purpose are almost certainly untrue. However, I, I think the most intriguing update of recent days was stills from a CCTV-style display, which was showing four shots of Tom recording vocals. Um, now, we're, we're fairly straight men, but... But uh, well, I'm actually being uh, massaged by a young lady right now. But but we're less interested in pictures of lovely Tom than we are of the implications of those pictures. Well, yeah, it's, it's interesting that if he's, uh, if Tom's recording the vocals now, that's generally the last thing that you do on a record. Yeah, you can only record the vocals once you've written the lyrics yeah. and they've been drafted, redrafted, the music's been laid down so you're singing in time to something. Exactly. You have to have something in your headphones first. So, we reckon this is the final stretch. So, the next move for the band, we're, we're feeling much more confident about saying this now. Mm-hmm. In the next few weeks, you're going to see the album moving forwards into the mixing and the mastering stage. But hang on, Andrew. Hang on a second. What does mixing and mastering actually mean? As a matter of sheer coincidence, we're joined on the line now by popular Scottish music expert and ginger love machine, Martin MacDonald.
1: Hello, Mark. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. Yourself?
0: We're it's good, yeah. A, it's a lovely day down here in London town.
1: Has well, it's it... not been bad up here as well, so...
0: So, um, we, uh, we'd like to ask you some things about what happens when the record process is finished. When the, uh, when the recording is done, what happens next? What are mixing and mastering, basically?
1: Well, you know, let's say, after the sort of main sort of body of recording will have been done by the band, they'll have got all the different parts that they want, the vocals, the drums, the bass, the piano, synths, guitars, all that kind of stuff So all there's, there.
0: There's not just one part for... They don't just record one vocal
1: for a song. No, no, no. I mean, generally speaking, the, probably in terms of vocals, it's actually quite an interesting one because I think generally what will happen is they use a, a technique called comping of vocals, where you actually take record multiple takes of the same vocal, and then you know one might have like one particular verse that sounds really good, the chorus might sound better, than another one, and because of the wonders of digital editing, then you can go in and pick out the best, and so you piece it all together like a jigsaw to make the sort of best take. You know,
0: make a. A nice sort of composite a uh, greatest hits of Indeed. the uh, of that song
1: yeah so you just get the the best result there and each thing is stored separately so you get the vocal completely on its own and you've got piano parts completely on their own drums on their own and then it's all got to be layered together because once you've got all those individual parts that's where a mixing comes in
0: so who actually does the mixing process then mart is it the band are they involved in that
1: i think generally the band will be involved i mean certainly my understanding of the way things have worked for them in the past uh, is that in the studio with the producer now in the past this would have been with Andy Green who did both uh, Hopes and Fears and uh, Under the Iron Sea with with the band in terms of producing but what they will do is in the studio they'll make up sort of rough monitor mixes as they call uh, as they call them, and that means that it's just a very sort of rough mix that gives them the idea, of the sort of basic kind of like volume levels of the track. You know how loud the drums are in one section, how loud the bass is, how loud the piano is, how loud yeah. the vocal is, and that gives them something to basically to work from. Now, I think once the recording process on Hopes and Fears had finished, then I think they actually took a couple of weeks off and individually each went away with monitor mixes of the songs.
0: Is this um, what is known as? Uh, I think Chris calls it road testing.
1: Yeah, yeah, basically that's what it is, you know, they're, they're going away listening to wait and listen into those rough mixes, see what they like, see what they don't like, so they'll note it all down and then they can go back into the studio and actually do some final tidy up kind of work on the yeah. songs before they actually get taken away or get sent away to a professional mixing engineer. Now that's the kind of real final mix is actually going to be done by somebody else, but I would expect the band to still be involved. But they're perhaps not... turning the in-
0: knobs themselves. Yeah, they're not no, really
1: hands-on no. involved. I wouldn't expect they're really hands-on. I mean, potentially, I maybe mean, of like Tom, Tim, and Richard, I would expect that Tim probably takes the, the most keen interest in what's going on in the mixing stage. But they they will be guiding a professional engineer who does that for a living rather than doing it themselves. That's what I would imagine.
0: So the uh, the mixing process having been. First, the monitor mixes, then the road testing with the man taking it off in their cars mm-hmm. and listening. On the road, yep. quite literally. Quite literally road testing. Then off to the professional engineer for a uh, for a final set of mixes. Yep. Are we then on to mastering?
1: Once you've got the, the, the full set of songs from the sessions actually done and that final mixing has been done, then, yeah, you're really at the point of mastering. Before you do that, the one thing they have to do is decide on what songs they actually want to go on the album. Uh, because... Mm-hmm generally speaking they're probably going to have recorded more songs than you know would actually fit on the final yeah. track list so they want to trim out the ones that seem as if they don't quite fit see this the, is the um theme.
0: this is where b-sides come in because yeah. the, the b-sides are generally speaking they're not they're not tracks that they record later they tend to come from the album sessions themselves
1: yeah definitely or uh you know there's On the whole, yeah. I mean, there there are cases where, you know, they they might go back later in the studio and record some songs specifically for B-sides. But generally speaking, a lot of B-side material will come from the original album sessions. It's just songs that didn't quite make the cut for going on to the album itself. So once the band have made that decision, and I think that really is their decision, you know, the, the record company or the producer might have some kind of input into songs. But ultimately, it's got to be the band's decision what songs go on their album. Once they're at that point, then it can go to a mastering engineer, and they'll get sent the original those mixes that the mixing engineer did, and they then go through and sequence the album correctly. So put the songs into the correct order, get the transitions between them for when it goes onto like a CD or whatever. You know, fading out of songs. You know, songs are going to stick. The little annoying two-second pauses that you get. Yeah, putting all those those pauses in between the tracks. And also um, going on to actually more cunning things about like levelling out the volume between the different tracks so it sort of hangs together more cohesively as a sort of record when you listen to it. So you don't have one really loud song going into one where you
0: need to turn the volume up and down to get the right level.
1: Yeah, so it's about getting sort of consistency across the whole album because by the nature of the songs, you know, one will be different to the other. But, you know, the, the mastering process will go through and try and make sure that the those kind of changes are less obvious or, or not as jarring as they might be so
0: i think this brings us on to something which is one of your your pet peeves at the moment Mark, and yours as well chris mm-hmm. um perhaps he, um between the two of you you can uh, explain to us what the loudness debate is um maybe you first chris okay well in recent years uh, mastering engineers have started uh, mastering records to be very very loud so that means that there's not much of a variation in the dynamics. So that even the quiet parts of songs are still very, very loud on the CD. That means that when you try and uh, turn it up, you just get a lot of sort of distorted sounds, and you you lose a lot of the the little flavors of, of you lose of the, the subtleties. Yeah, is is that right, Matt?
1: Yeah, that's you know that's definitely my understanding of it. You know, I think this the loudness war, um, as it tends to be kind of called, is it's not that new a phenomenon you know this has been going on certainly i think since the dawning of cd mm-hmm. uh, as the sort of main medium of, of record distribution but i think it's existed in other forms you know before that as well even on vinyl but certainly on cd it's become much more of a of a, a growing problem well it depends some people don't think it's a problem i i personally do think it's a problem because as chris said you know making a record loud can be a good thing you know and it's natural for the human ear to want to to prefer a louder sound, if you listen to the same track, it's great for you know, radio, kind of is it? Yeah, if you listen to the same track quiet and then you listen to it again loud, you instinctively prefer the louder version just because yeah. of the way the human ear works. But the problem comes when it's okay, saying it's okay to make you know your track louder, but in digital, when you're recording digitally and putting something onto a CD, there is a fixed level of how loud you can actually make it, and then you start and- to lose things yeah because it will then start to clip as it's called clipping so you'll lose information off the top of it and the clipping can then sound like you know you'll get popping sounds clicking distortion as chris kind of said you know so it's it's not like just recording it quieter yeah. and then turning up the volume on your hi-fi where you'll you'll preserve the dynamics because in order to actually make this loud and still get around the fact that a cd can only cope with a certain volume then you have you use techniques like something called compression, which basically means that the the real peaks in volume are sort of trimmed back, and the, the quieter sections are brought up in volume. So you lose the dynamic, and for me, that's you know the, that that kind of dynamic is what makes songs exciting. That's what makes music interesting. You know, I don't want to hear it as just you know one a sort of complete wall of noise. You know, that's at yeah. the same volume all the way through.
0: I think this is something Keen has been very very guilty of in in the past. Uh, if you listen to Hopes and Fears and Under the INC, and even a lot of the B-sides, they've all been mastered very, very loud, and they're very in-your-face. Uh, and I think that's a shame, because it, you lose a lot of the, the the quiet layers of synthesizers and things. And I think, if I want to hear, if I want to hear keen, loud, and in my face, I have a volume control. I can do that myself.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely agree with that, you know, I... I... It, for me, it would be really interesting to hear like, some of the mixes, particularly on, under the Iron Sea, uh, because I think some of the the distortion, there's a lot of distortion effects with the piano and stuff like that. So that kind of stuff you know, doesn't necessarily cope that well when you start bringing in this uh, like brick wall leveling that happens on mastering. Uh, and I'd be really interested to hear some of those tracks and the original mixes before the final master stage to actually see what the dynamics really were. Um, I have to say, actually, you know, one thing I have wondered about is the vinyl versions of uh, both Hopes and Fears and Under the Iron Sea. I know there are, there to, are a lot of people who do prefer them to the, the CD copies that are out there. Yeah, I have to hold my hand up in shame and say I'm a bad Keen fan and that I have neither vinyl copies of neither of those albums. Oh, Matt. Uh, yeah, terrible. I know. Slapping the wrists, you know, to think that I call myself a fan. But um, maybe I should actually... Buy myself copies of them if I could ever find them, uh, and actually have a listen, compare it to the CD versions, because I think it might make interesting listening.
0: We, well, we all know what to get you for Christmas.
1: <laughs> well, CP70 would be better, but you know, I'll, I'll take those albums.
0: So, um, thanks a lot for that, Mart. If uh, you've got anything that you'd like to contribute on the mixing and the mastering of the albums, drop us a line at beyondtheinc at gmail dot com. Thanks again, Mart. Cheers. When Richard fell ill during the band's May 2004 UK tour, Ginger Baker of Cream filled in for him at the Cardiff gig. BEYOND THE I&T. Time for us to pile on into this week's mailbag. And what a week. We've had a bumper week this week. Oh, it's bulging so much we've almost felt obliged to put a cushion over it. Play I offer some relief, reach in there and grab something for you? Well, of course. But I think we should probably do one of the letters first. Agreed. Our first missive this week comes from the Fair Hands of Demetria. While the band has been recording, I was wondering if you guys could put right whether the Keen themselves or KeenMusic.com webmasters are displaying the pictures, videos, artwork, etc. I've been hearing some scepticism about their letters, which makes me wonder whether they're involved with the content. Well, I suppose, first of all, we should probably establish a sort of chain of command, see who's involved in the whole thing. Yeah, let's get the players here. I mean, on on one side, you have the record label, Island, uh, Universal, Interscope, if you're American. Um, They're probably what most fans think of as the bosses. Then on the other side, you have the band, who are set apart from the rest of the operation. You've got their their managers and their people. They're they're making their music, they're having their fun. Yeah, that's right. So, which of these two sides are the webmasters on? Are they people from the record label? Or are they people who are working with the band, for the band, on the band's side? But what we think, and we're probably in the minority here, is we think that the content going onto the website doesn't actually go via the record label directly. And I think we should make it clear that we don't think the band themselves are logging onto the website, writing the web page, and putting it up themselves. Do you think Tim is a whiz with HTML tags? I've no idea what that means. But we, uh, we think they're giving the material to somebody who works for them, one of their webmasters, um, somebody who does that sort of thing for them. Yeah, to and to do the donkey work for exactly, them. Exactly, and they, they put it directly onto the website just for you. So thank you for that question, Demetria. Moving on to the next message from our mountain of mail. I've got one here from my favourite Portuguese. Is that Julieta? It is. Ah, ah Julieta. Julie. And she writes... Are Keen thinking about releasing the new album or a few emblematic songs through MySpace or the key Music website for free? Richard said something about live shows as a way of living. Will Keen take that risk and release for a short time a free download and then make their cash on tour? That's a really good question, I think, Julieta. And uh, reading Tim's recent blog, I think there might actually be something in that. Um, We we saw they they were hanging out with Fran Healy and arguing about In Rainbows. Of course, if you don't know, that was the recent album that Radiohead put out for free on the internet for anyone to download. And this uh, this has been in the news recently um, because uh, Tom York, uh, the frontman of Radiohead, has been sort of distancing the band from this. Uh, He's been saying that they probably wouldn't do it again. It was more of a... A one-off brought about by circumstances. Mm-hmm. Uh, there seems to be a lot of this going on at the moment. I think the Charlatans have have done uh, released an album for free. Yeah, you know. that was through through a radio station here in London. Now that they know people aren't going to pay for something when they can get it for free, um, it, it's, it's it's not as experimental a, as it. The, the moments may be past, and I think we've got to look now to what the next fad's going to be. And I think the best use of the internet and uh, downloadable songs in the next sort of few months to a year or so, it's going to be slashing the lead time. You know what I mean by lead time, don't you, Chris? Yeah, do you mean the distance between the album being finished and and put out on the internet? Yeah, pretty much. um, Whereas before, we we talked about it in a recent podcast, that you'd be looking at eight to nine months between the album being finished and the disc being on the record racks. Whereas with the internet, now you'll be looking at the album being completed, mixed mastered and then on the internet for you to download within a couple of weeks but even if you do that you still need a lot of time to put together the artwork the posters the promotional slots and so on it, it just puts even more of a pressure on so it becomes a very very tight uh process yeah well i think at the moment that the fact that um actors are doing this um, one act in particular is uh, the raconteurs who feature a friend of Keynes in Brendan Benson they've uh, they've just done exactly what we're talking about the very fact that you're one of the first acts to do this that attracts the publicity that a marketing campaign would usually achieve but it's only until that novelty wears off yeah, once everyone's done it, it's not. It, there is no marketing angle, so yeah. the, it sort of defeats its own point. So I think the only safe thing we can really say about the launch of the third album is that it's going to be nothing like the other two. Yeah, I, th- I think that's. Uh, I think that's a fair thing to say. Uh, thanks a lot, Julietta, for another spanking good question. We love you. Yeah, bless your heart. And that is all from the mailbag this time. Mailbag can only exist with your support. As we speak, next week's podcast is looking limp, malnourished, and missing user-generated content. Is this the future that you want for your children? No. And if it is, you're a bastard. So please, don't hesitate. Give just one email a week to beyondtheinc at gmail.com. Please, it's only right. They spun away for me. Try Try again was actually written in Acton Tube Depot. Beyond the So that is all for another delicious slice of Beyond the, the Iron Sea. Please, kids, don't have nightmares. Next time, we'll be taking a closer look at Tom's jockstrap sponsorship deal. It does mean a lot to us, the amount of support you guys have given us, so thank you. But until then, have a lovely time. Ta-ta.